Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Viking Press, publisher of Emily Alone, a novel by Stuart Onan. Emily Alone is about Emily Maxwell, a widowed mother and grandmother whose children have grown and begun families of their own. She lives out her days in a tidy universe of beautiful routine where she plays the master of a comforting galaxy of holiday socials and local gossip. But when her friend and sister-in-law suffers a stroke at their favorite local buffet, Emily's world begins to change. Raves the Los Angeles Times, quote, Stuart Onan's books are not about poverty, life's crises, gross injustice or family drama. In fact, there's very little drama in his works. He has become a spokesperson in modern fiction for the regular person, the working person, and now the elderly. In Emily Alone, his 13th novel, he has thrown himself into the daily life of an elderly woman using all his interest and empathy. That's Emily Alone by Stuart Onan. It's available now from Viking Press. It's a book. You can read it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. My name is Brad Listy. Welcome back to the program. Uh, today's guest is Adam Novi. He is the author of the Avian Gospels, available now from Short Flight Long Drive Books. That's an independent press. Uh, the Avian Gospels, Publishers Weekly, says that it has the potential to become a cult classic. It's a it's a dystopian novel. It is uh, slightly surreal. It's about people who can control birds with their minds, which, you know, that feels sort of relevant as this show is airing uh, the day before Thanksgiving 2011. So people controlling birds with their minds. Uh, it, it should be noted that this book is published in two volumes and it is designed to look like a Bible. It has gold stamping on a red textured Lexitone cover. It has rounded edges. It has gold gilding, all of it. It looks like a religious text. This too feels relevant as we round the bend and enter the holiday season full force. So Thanksgiving tomorrow, I imagine that many of you are traveling right now. Perhaps you're listening to this, uh, you know, in an airport. Perhaps you're listening on an airplane. Perhaps you're on a train. Maybe you're in your car. I don't know where you are, but 
I imagine lots of us are in transit uh, for the holiday weekend. I got to say, I'm not a huge fan of the holidays generally. The travel, the forced niceness, the insinuation, you know, in all caps, that this is a special day. That, that, that feels like pressure to me. I don't like the pressure of it. I always find myself thinking, you know, what if it's not special? What if it's boring? What if the weather sucks? What if I'm tired? Special days to me should happen naturally. They should happen spontaneously in the natural flow of life. I don't want to be told that a day is special and then, you know, feel uh, obligated to live up to that somehow. It feels inauthentic to me. Everybody, you know, getting all anxious and worked up about the holidays. And, you know, I think this is just how I'm wired. Uh, you know, it is something, it's an, uh, is it an affectation? I don't know. I just, you know, I'm reflexively this way. I'm not a total contrarian. I'm not extreme in my views, or at least I don't feel like I am. I am capable of agreeing with people, and I can go with the flow. I do it every year. Every year the holidays come, I will state my opinion if asked, or if I'm doing a podcast apparently. But, you know, ultimately, I'm in a decent mood. I play along. It's not like I'm a total Scrooge. You know, but I think it's just, you know, when someone tells me what mood to be in or how to behave, and it's this big group mind thing, and everyone, you know, it's just, I tend to revolt. And, uh, you know, it's not just the holidays. It's even, I found myself recently, you know, those commercials, and I'm sure you've seen at least one of these things. It's this massive national ad campaign from the Foundation for a Better Life. It's the billboards, it's TV commercials, you know, it's the, the whole tagline, pass it on. You know, somebody does something nice, and then it's like, you know, pass it on. Or values.com, I don't know who's doing this, but... You know, I'm driving around and I look up at this billboard and it's the Mona Lisa looking down at me, smiling at me. And underneath her, it says, smile, pass it on, the foundation for a better life. And I'm driving and I think to myself, no, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna frown. I'm gonna maintain a neutral facial expression. I'm gonna be deadpan, suck it. Or, you know, there's another one, uh, another billboard and it's got Kermit the Frog on it. And underneath Kermit's picture, like Kermit of all... You know, of all creatures, I do love Kermit, but underneath him, it says, eats flies, dates a pig, Hollywood star, live your dreams, pass it on. And I'm thinking to myself, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to live my nightmare. How about that? It's not that severe, but you know what I'm saying? It's just like a reflex with me. Don't tell me how to feel. That's what the holidays are. You got to feel a certain way. And, you know, I don't want to be an asshole. I really don't. I, like I said, I will go along. I'll be at my parents' house tomorrow. I'll be eating. We're going to eat. We're going to sit there. We're going to have to say grace. And I'm going to feel uncomfortable about that. Grace does make me uncomfortable. Uh, I get embarrassed for some reason. I don't, I'm not exactly sure why. You know, you're just being thankful. That's a good thing. Uh, we're going to eat to excess. We're going to sit there at midday. There's definitely going to be a tryptophan comment. It happens in my family every year. It's a guarantee. We eat. We get tired. It's this big meal in the middle of the day. And uh, someone will say, you know why turkey makes you tired? And then someone else will say, because of the tryptophan. Or there might even be like two or three people who say, because of the tryptophan. Synchronously. So, I mean, Thanksgiving. It's sanctioned gluttony. Everybody's uncomfortable. You feast. You stuff yourself until you feel sick. An amount of food that most people in the world could never even dream of seeing. I don't know. That's a bad attitude. 
<sighs> anyway, uh, you know, holidays. I'm thinking of Arbor Day. You know, there's a holiday I can get behind. You plant a tree. That's a good day. You know, it's just plant a tree. That's it. It's not like plant a tree and be ironic or plant a tree and adopt a can-do attitude. You know, it's just plant a tree if you feel like it or not. But Christmas, it's like cut down a tree, be nicer today than you've been all year, buy tons of shit from the mall, celebrate Jesus, and, and mow down a forest, butcher a living thing. Go go to a beautiful pine tree, hack it down, drag it into your living room, and uh, hang some tacky lights on it for Jesus. And you know it's not even it's not even really Jesus's birthday. That's the truth. That's a truth that bothers me. No one even knows when the guy was actually born. We're just like celebrating this arbitrary day, and it's supposedly this guy's birthday, but we all kind of know it's not his birthday. And we're chopping down trees to celebrate him, and we're engaging in wanton consumerism while people the world over are starving. And, you know, I know that's neurotic and hardcore. I don't want to, you know, I'm doing it partially to just entertain you, but, uh, you know, I'm not hanging on too tightly. I will cede to the majority, and, uh, you know, I'll deal with the crowds and the logistical chaos. I'm not traveling, luckily, this year. But, uh, you know, if you are traveling, you're in the airport, and I'm here with you. And, uh, you know, one of the things about airports and airport travel at the holidays uh, that I think is interesting, uh, the books, you know, people moving around and how I, whenever I'm in an airport or I'm on an airplane and someone's reading something, I have this unbelievable desire to see what someone else is reading. Like I will go to incredible lengths, like dropping down to tie my shoe, even when I don't need to tie it. Uh, I will keep stealing glances, you, you name it, to just see the cover of the book that someone is reading so that I can get a glimpse and try to figure out what it tells me about them, uh, you know, because I think I'm not alone. I'm one of those people who I feel like I can look at what someone's reading and instantly understand who they are, you know, books as signifiers. And then, you know, it gets into this whole conversation about books we read in public versus books we read in private. You know, there are some books that you'll take on a plane. There are other books that like you prefer to read at home, or at least I'm that way. I think, you know, I don't want anyone to see what I'm reading. You know, what's interesting is that I will look and I will go to great lengths to find out what someone else is reading, but I, I go to equally great lengths to sort of protect the book that I'm reading. I don't want to signify. I want to remain a mystery, I think, or something. You know, I remember I was on a flight recently from New York to LA and the guy across from me was reading a, a Hunter Thompson book called Kingdom of Fear. And I remember this guy, he had like a beard. He looked a little hungover. New York to LA, you know, I could, I just totally knew who he was immediately. I wanted to talk to him. I eventually couldn't resist. And I did say a few words and we talked a little bit. Nice guy, but you know, I felt like I instantly knew him based on what he was reading. So, you know, I think there are people, you know, this happens on the subway. This happens everywhere in public, but people sometimes want other people to see, you know, they want people to see what they're reading. They want people to have that glimpse and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe everyone should have to carry a book at all times and it should, the cover should be in plain view so we can all know who someone else is. Yeah. That would be kind of fun. You know, like everybody has a book, like they're just a book jacket somewhere visible on their person. You know, so if I'm traveling at the holidays, what's my book? I don't know. I think, is there a book out there called you can't make me? 
That's what I want. I want a book called You Can't Make Me, and I will carry that around and show it to everyone just to let them know that that's, uh, that's who I am. Anyway, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm grateful for you. Please know that. I appreciate you. You understand me? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. After that, there was uh, a lot of reviews that came out right around Thanksgiving. I think like four or five reviews came out right around then. Uh, and then there's some bird-watching blogger for the Guardian newspaper in England uh, who mentioned the book on his bird blog and sort of said that bird they have watchers, a they have a bird watching blogger bird watching but well you know in England there's like nothing to do except people like, bird yeah you know, I like that's a verb people go birding to bird to bird uh, and he was like don't read the book it's too violent uh, but I read the Guardian because I really like the soccer news uh, so I was excited to see that I had been panned and. My favorite newspaper, but that, that even that's good. The, the, even that's good. Don't yeah. read it; it's too violent. All that does is incite people to read it. Yeah, totally. Like, don't read it. There's too much sex. Yeah, yeah. It's the greatest thing anyone could say about it was your like book. Like a really boring birder thought my book was too extreme. You know, it was yeah. Like I got panned. You know, I really wanted the New York Times to pan it. You know. Yeah, like, and, and like, but like pan it in a way like where they condemn it. Right. That's a, that's also desirable. Right. They make a huge stink about it and call it like you know. The end of literature. The Beastie Boys wanted to get uh, the Beatles to sue them, uh, and so they they uh, they sampled Beatles songs in a certain way on Paul's Boutique, and I can't remember exactly how it is they went about it, but I was thinking about that a lot when the book came out. It was like a well-placed, deeply negative review will really help me. You know, yeah, like it'll, or just sample the Beatles somehow in your book. Yeah, that's a good idea. Try to get try to get Paul McCartney to sue you. Yeah, that would be great. How might one do that? I'm trying, like, racking my brain now. It's kind I of just brilliant. have to, like, steal something that he did. You know, yeah. just, like, quote him. There's got to be, like, a way to, like, a way to, like, quote people that is kosher and a way that's trafe. You know, and you got to figure out the trafe way to quote Paul McCartney. Yeah. You know. So, how long did it take you to write it? Like, it sounded like when you said this weight came off your back, like, were you working on this thing for years and years? And, yes. Or was it, the, was it the sales process that just sort of, like, was it a lengthy sales process? It was a long and difficult, crooked sales process, I'd say. I think I started the book in, like, 2002 and thought it was done in, like, 2005. And then uh, it took me a year to get an agent 
And then... Uh, Who'd you finally land with? Susan Gollum, uh, who I think is a great agent, and she was really wonderful for me. And, you know, I don't have a bad thing to say, uh, but it did take us 13 months to rewrite the book once she'd taken it. And then uh, when you and I were talking before we went on here, you talked about how you had some, like, agonizing near misses, and I had some just unbelievable near misses. Yeah, no, you know, it's like, the worst. I mean, unbelievable. Like, one guy liked the first half of the book, and then... Uh, around the time in the second in the second half of the book, when people start setting fires, uh, this guy's apartment burned down, and he was like, "Well, I'm not taking this book because you know fires." Unbelievable. So he didn't take it, and then someone else was like, "I like it, but my boss doesn't like it, so I can't take it." And you know, just one thing after another. And I sort of thought like I was like set up to take a punch. But then what I learned is that I was not set up to take a punch at all. You know, I just like... Well, it depends what kind of punch. I mean, I, I don't know. That part of the process, you finally... There's so many false summits in publishing from the mm -hmm. writer's side. Mm -hmm. you, you finish the book. Mm -hmm. You think that's going to somehow be some sort of moment. And I guess it is. But then mm -hmm. you have to go get an agent. You go through those. You get the agent, and that's a false summit. Then the yeah. agent's got to go out and sell it. You yeah. get an editor who loves the book. Mm -hmm. And they always... And I guess this is more like in Hollywood. They tend to love things in all caps. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, whenever you get that email, like, so-and-so loves in all caps. Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. then they have to go convince all their colleagues that it's worth buying. I mean, it's just like... Un mm -hmm. It's an unreal process to get yeah. through it, it. You know, that's it's quite a gauntlet to run. Anybody who gets through it, I have, uh, you know, respect for. <laughs> yeah, that person <laughs> can 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 tolerate physical pain. Yeah, and, and, and emotional pain, all kinds of different pain. Yeah. So, uh, you know, going through the agent process for what did you say a year? Yeah. And then how long did it take to sell the book? Uh, well, we we wrote it for thirteen months, and then we she tried to sell it uh, before Thanksgiving. And I guess we had four editors who really liked it before Thanksgiving and four editors who had changed their mind right after Thanksgiving. God. Uh, and then, uh, and I really like my agent and she did a phenomenal book and she taught me how to write a book. I mean, that's, and, and, and she sold the book in Spain. It's coming out in Spain sometime. Uh, but there was some question about whether I was going to continue rewriting it after it had initially failed to, uh, you know, win everybody over in New York, and I decided that I couldn't rewrite it anymore, you know. So then there was this time when I was sort of looking for a small press to sell it to, and uh, and Levin was helping me. I have to say that, that the book would never have been sold if it wasn't... You're talking about for, Adam Levin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the book never would have been sold if it wasn't for Adam Levin, and he... Uh, you know, he his work has been published in a lot of journals, so he got in touch with uh, with a bunch of them that have book presses, and Hobart was one of them. The Hobart people were in Chicago, and he, uh, the Hobart people are Aaron Birch and Elizabeth Ellen, uh, soon to be married in about a month. Oh, yeah, congratulations. Yeah, you know, they're really great. Uh, and he talked to them about the book, and so uh, I sent it to them, and they do mini books. So they looked at the length of the manuscript, which is about 94,000 words, and they thought, well, this is too long, and, and they rejected it. And I told Levin, and then they were in Chicago again, and he stalked them to some bar and like threw them up against a wall and demanded that they actually read the book, uh, which they sort of insisted that they had done, you know, but really they just looked at how long it was. And then they went back and 
read the first half of the book, and then they were like, huh, well, maybe we should divide this up into two halves uh, and issue it as, like, two separate mini-books. Uh, so they finished the book, and they called me and pitched me that idea and said, we'll make it look like a Bible with, like, a leatherette cover and, uh, you know, gold uh, on the pages. and like, What author's going to turn that, that off? Yeah, I thought I was, like, not only was I desperate and I was willing to go with whatever they said, but I actually loved the idea, so... Uh, and it came at the right time because I'd been living in New York for two years and I was working pretty regularly as a teacher and thought I was going to have consistent work. But my girlfriend at the time, uh, and now my fiance, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, she, um, she decided to go to graduate school, uh, out here at UC Irvine. So, you know, creative writing or, uh, uh, art actually, she's a video artist. Oh, that's right. You said that already. And, uh, I decided that I was going to move with her and my parents thought that this was like completely crazy, you know, like absolutely odd. Like we were out of our mind. I was out of my mind to do that, you know, and I felt like I was this moron and, uh, but then I got to tell them that I'd sold the book. So, so that made me look like I was responsible, right? you know, so, uh, it happened at the right time. So, and now you're out in California. You lived in Chicago, you lived in New York City, and now you're living in Irvine? Yeah, I was in Irvine uh, and Long Beach. I was in Irvine for two years and Long Beach for a year, and now I'm in uh, scenic South Pasadena, which you, is way better. Way know? better than Orange. Orange County is a strange place. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in a suburb outside Chicago, so in some ways I, I feel like I am where I live. So I felt like I was a very antiseptic, clean, organized, rich, boring person who... Uh, drove really slowly, you know, uh, while I was living in Orange County, and I just didn't recognize myself or what the hell was going on. Well, no, you know, that's interesting that you say that, because I'm kind of the same way where I feel like I adapt. Like, wherever I am, I want to blend. Mm-hmm. That's how I am. Sure. And it, it's, it, I just don't want to, like, stand out in terms right. of the way that I dress. Mm-hmm. I, don't want, I, I don't want that. I want to be able to blend in. So, like, when I lived in Colorado, I was mm-hmm. wearing fleeces and boots and... I mean, part of it's the weather, but the other part of it is just right. like the, the aesthetic of whatever the little culture is there. Well, we're writers. We're professional wallflowers. You know? Yeah. We're professional eavesdroppers. But I feel like know? some writers, like some of these writers I see or writer friends, I think they have a real palpable sense of style. Mm-hmm. And there's like an aesthetic that they, they've got and it's kind of natural or, or it's mm-hmm. conceived and it's what makes them happy and it's how they express themselves or whatever. But like for me, mm-hmm. you put me anywhere. And I'm going to find, and I don't, I don't sit there and think about it. I just do it maybe out of some sort of, you know, nervous tick or whatever it is, but I just, mm-hmm. I adapt, I mold to wherever I am. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess Los Angeles has had its effect on me to a degree. Like wh- wh- where was I? Oh no, I was out with my wife and we walked into a restaurant, you know, we had been hiking we went out to get like lunch afterwards and she runs into one of her old coworkers and her coworker's husband. I never met them before. Mm-hmm. And they both looked at me and, and the woman's like, Oh, you're a writer, huh? Like just by looking at me. And I was like, what is, you know, what is it? Do I, it's like, do I look sad? Do I look uh-huh. defeated? Like, I didn't know what it was, but I just like, I guess I have just like adapted or, you know, taken on this, like, you know, look mm-hmm. in terms of what I wear. It was very mm-hmm. odd, you know, it made me feel self-conscious. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the people in LA who look like we don't have personal trainers. Is that what it is? We're the only ones. <laughs> no. Oh, you're not doing P90X. Yeah. You know, I don't even know what P90X is. is. Uh, it's a home workout program. Oh, it is. Yeah. 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 Which, uh, apparently everyone is doing. What does it involve? Uh, I know cause I did it for a while. Um, 
uh, you get like a chin-up bar and you do a lot of chin-ups and then like a lot of push-ups. I can probably do two chin-ups. I was doing, I, my, I could do 20 chin-ups at my peak. Uh, and then I achieved 20 chin-ups and I was like, huh, it's time to eat some cheesecake. That's it. You know, and that was There's it. nowhere else to go. the promised land. You know, it's weird. It's like I moved here and like started, like, I like got in shape, you know, and... Well, the weather's nice. You can I mean I like I I, mm-hmm. I I feel like I have to like I have a kid, and mm-hmm. the only way that I can maintain an energy level is to be physical. I have to exercise that, and it's also how I'm wired. I've always mm-hmm. I just I you know I go hiking. Mm-hmm. I, I do this spinning class now, mm-hmm. but you know I I have a hard time doing chin ups. That's mm-hmm. the only thing I can't do. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. You know, doing mm-hmm. strength stuff is hard for me. It's not yeah, as exciting. It's hard for me too. Not strong. So, but I mean, when you lived in uh, in Brooklyn, you lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You're you're inside more. I mean, it's just the the winters. It's, it's natural. But you live yeah. out in Irvine. What else are you going to do? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, do you like? I mean, c- compare the experience. Like, because I've always wanted like you live in California, and I think you think about New York, or at least I do. Mm-hmm. Do you miss it? In some ways, I miss it. I mean, I have so many friends in New York. I really, really miss them. Uh, I have a lot of friends here, but I don't see them as much, you know, because everyone lives really far away. And, and uh, you know, I miss the subway. I hate driving. I hate driving, and I'm bad at it. Uh, and I just feel like every time I get in the car, I'm going to die, and I think, like, driving is stupid, you know, and I don't know why I have to do it. But in other ways... Uh, I don't miss New York. I mean, if someone looks at someone funny on the subway in New York, uh, then everybody blogs about it, you know, and, 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 and apparently I'm sensitive. So I would read something and I would think, how does this affect me? You know, and since I moved out here, I just don't care, you know, and, and there are a lot of writers out here, but very few of them are actually really writing fiction, you know, like, I don't know. Right. It's all like Hollywood screenplay stuff and yeah, everyone's sort of, it's sort of so diffuse. There are a lot of people out here who write books. I mean, yeah, it's a big place. Tons of them. There are like writers all over the place, but they're not like, we're so not important here, you know, yeah. and actually that's really freeing to me. You know, and... and are, are writers important in New York? I mean, still? I, you know, I, I, they think they're important. Yeah. You know, and they're, like, looking at each other, always, like, sizing each other up like they're important. You know, I feel like, like, like a really important writer since I moved here, like a writer that a lot of people I know talk about a lot, is Philip K. Dick. Uh, and so many people that I meet, not necessarily writers, but sometimes their writers talk about science fiction in a way that they never talked about it. In when I was in New York or even Chicago, you know, and it was so much more important. And 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 I never hear, I rarely hear a writer here say, "I need to make my characters more likable," you know, or "I need my book to be more affable," you know. And there was that piece in, I think it was in N plus one. One of the N plus one writers was talking about what makes uh, ambitious books successful, and he said that they have a certain kind of affability, you know, that like uh, Steingart and and. Uh, Michael Chabin and uh, uh, Juno Diaz and uh, Jeffrey Eugenides, all these guys who write like big recent books, the books are all affable, you know, and uh, what does that mean? It, it, there's like a kind of like folksy agreeability to them. And I felt like that was like, I don't know if I necess- I don't know if that statement is right, but it seems like a really New York statement. And uh, here, the writers I know just don't talk about their books that way. And it doesn't seem like the publishing industry is sort of uh, haunting everything that we do here, 
you know, and there's not this feeling of the immediacy of uh, the public, like this consideration of what I'm writing is publishable or not. And when I was in New York, that was something that I really thought about that everyone was always talking about. And I don't feel that pressure here. And uh, I like not feeling that pressure. Well, I mean, in living in like living in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. it is the de facto capital of literary America. Yeah. Like per capita. Yeah. It fascinates me. There are so many yeah. working novelists yeah, and I living feel, in Brooklyn. And I feel like 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 how important you are is related to how close you live to Prospect Park. Oh, is that, it? So is that how it works? I think that's what it is. And like the further away you get, like, so I was on Pluto, you know. Uh, Where were you? I was in Fort Greene, uh, which is not Prospect Heights and it's not uh, Park Slope, you know. And, and uh, I mean, it's a lovely neighborhood to live in, you know. It was, it's a fantastic place to live. And, uh, and I miss being able to walk around. Uh, but there's just something about, like, being at the center of the world that made me uncomfortable. There was something, and then maybe I was comfortable the first year I was there, and then when I couldn't sell the book, I got a lot less comfortable, you know. And then I moved out here, and no one cared. Yeah, there's like it's something. There's something freeing about living out here Mm -hmm. and being a writer of fiction or a writer in general. You just can, you know, there's there's little constraint. No one's watching. Mm -hmm. You get to sort of work on a blank screen. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I think so. But you miss out on having proximity to the book business i mean it's it's like trying to be a screenwriter in uh you know colorado yeah absolutely. and hoping to sell your script you know you almost have to i guess it can be done i think it happens mm-hmm. every once in a while but mm-hmm. i think very few working screenwriters live elsewhere unless they've already done time here and have developed a career and then they have the ability to go move away but it's very yeah. difficult to publish remotely i mean i think it's easier to absolutely. do it in, in the book business yeah um, yeah. but I feel like there's an advantage to be had living in New York and having access and just social access to, to all the people who work in that business. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, th- like within like the first month I was living there, I got an agent and a really, really good agent after having tried to get an agent while I was still living in Chicago. Uh, and it might be coincidence or it might not be coincidence, you know? Uh, so I don't know, but, um, I like living here a lot. I like the weather. You know, I like that every time I go outside, I feel pleasure. Yeah. You know, I'm from, I mean, you're from the Midwest too. So, yeah. you know, like, like 10 months out of the year, you go outside, you feel physical pain there. Well, but you see, know? I've been out here for 10 years and you get soft. Yeah. You totally. get soft quickly. And like, I forget, totally. like I sort of romanticize the seasons now. And like, you know, rain, when it rains here, it's sort of like quaint. It's exciting. Yeah. It's like exciting. It's yeah. like, Ooh, we get to stay inside today. And like, yeah, we're, you know, and it's like this kind yeah. of thing. And then. I think if I were living back in the in the cold and really had to deal with it day in and day out, it would probably wear on me. But yeah, I mean, I remember leaving the Midwest and leaving Indiana and moving to Colorado, where it was sunny like 330 days a year. I mean, yeah. the sun would shine, and I, I I was astounded by it. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm out here, and it's like there's not even any weather here. That's what I always say. Yeah, there's no there's weather. There's not even any wind. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Totally. <laughs> so it's but you know. It's got its positives. It's got its negatives, just like any place. And mm-hmm. uh, I go back and forth. I mean, this is something I think about all the time. Sure. Do I want to raise my kid here? Where do I want to be? Mm-hmm. You know, it, mm-hmm. where else would I go if I did leave here? Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are all those considerations. Like, do you feel like you're settled in California or do you feel like you'll keep moving? Well, I would really like to settle here. I've moved so much. I mean, I moved from Chicago to Brooklyn 
moved apartments in Brooklyn, moved to Long Beach, moved to Irvine, moved to South Pasadena, all in like the last five years. Ugh. I'm like dying to not move. To not move. It, yeah. Uh, all you hauls you're moving your own stuff? No, you know, I hire movers for some oh, of them. Okay. Uh, yeah. Finally found movers I like. Shout out to North Star Movers. They were yeah. really great. They didn't break anything. Good to know. Uh, and they didn't like challenge me to like some sort of like macho contest. The guy who moved me from Long Beach to Irvine kept telling me to like wear different clothes and different shoes. Uh, so I didn't like that guy. Uh, I would like to stay here. I mean, some of it is like predicated on where I can find work. It's easier to work in New York than it is here, but I think it's easier to live here than it is there. So, uh, I'm settled and I would like to stay, you know, uh, but I always feel wherever I'm living, I just want to stay there. You know, I hate moving. Can't stand it. I know. I just hate it. And so you're getting married soon? Uh, whenever my girlfriend and I get around to planning the wedding, you know, such a pain like, in the ass. Yeah, I mean, the idea of like sampling caterers, no, like just all makes of it. me so all of it's it. like such a waste of time. It's like exciting. You, know? you get engaged, and then all of a sudden you're like, "What about the napkins? Yeah, what about yeah. the?" And then we just eloped. I mean, we, we 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 didn't elope because our family's new, but we just took mm -hmm. off. Yeah, I would love to do that, but we want to invite our families. But we got uh, engaged. We had decided we were moving to Long Beach. We had signed a lease in the at a table outside the In-N-Out Burger by LAX and there were planes taking off and landing over our heads as we were signing the lease and then uh, we weren't flying back to Brooklyn until the next day so we went to a movie uh, at the Pike Movie Theater in Long Beach and the only movie we could get tickets to at that time was uh, The Incredible Hulk uh, and it was really sunny and we had to go inside and we didn't uh, and, and, and in the middle of all that, we got engaged, you know, like in the middle of the heat, we were like, let's get married. Uh, it, it was, was, that, like, it was uh, unpremeditated. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It was like madness. Let's give a ring or was it just like a conversation? It was a conversation. Wow. Uh, so, and that was like four years ago, I think. Uh, and we still haven't gotten around to planning the wedding. We know where we want to have it. Where is that? Uh, at the Integratron, uh, outside Joshua Tree National Park. What is that? It sounds the trippy. It is trippy. It's built supposedly uh, on like a vortex of magnetic energy. Good. It's a place where space aliens it's land. like Sedona. Right. Yeah, it's similar. And uh, the Integratron itself is a structure that's acoustically perfect. So uh, it's just, we think it'll be like the weirdest UFO wedding, that it'll be like an unwedding, we think. And pretty much whatever my girlfriend wants. She out gets. of the wedding, she's going to get. So is she sort of a trippy chick? I mean, is she in, like? I mean, what kind of video artist? She seems like she could be a little bit of a she free makes, spirit. She, uh, uh, well, she's really. I mean, it goes without saying that she's smarter and more articulate than I am. Uh, she's a really, really great artist. She makes like fake documentaries that have elements of history and science in them yeah. and most of and they sort of overlap so there's like it's like part science part history uh part uh all like, like most of the facts in what she does are phony i would say or they're bent a little bit and she's really interested in like disturbing the subject and showing that like a unified subject position is impossible you know and that uh sort of the apparatus that we use to tell ourselves who we are uh, is constructing us. Uh, this sounds sort of like really, really like uh, abstract and rarefied, 
but there's an overlap in the kind of work that she makes and the kind of stuff that I write. Like, I'm sort of really interested in, like, how we can't tell the truth about what happened to us, and we don't really know the truth of what happened to us, you know, and we, we're sort of like the last people that we should ask about what happened. I, I feel like I, I sort of, like, from, like, passage to passage of my life, I sort of don't know what happened, you know, and uh, around 9-11, this became a really, really massive concern to me. Uh, and it, it's, Were you in New York at that time? No, I was in Chicago. Okay. Uh, I was not in New York, and not being in New York was actually a really interesting thing because on the one hand, did it happen to the United States of America, but on the other hand, it was just something that I watched on television, you know, and I was unemployed when it happened, and my dad called me like seven times that morning, and he was screaming into my answering machine, we're at war, we're at war. So I finally uh. I turned on the TV and the first uh, the first tower had already fallen. Uh. Uh, and I'd slept through it. And, and, and it was like it was shocking. You know, and, and it, it, I had this like, we're all in it together type feeling, which I think a lot of people had. Like, we're all in this together. History just happened to us, you know. And uh, that we're all in it together feeling lasted about like two weeks for me, you know. And then I felt like I'd been ejected from it, you know. Uh but I was really interested in this, like, on the one hand, this, like, mutual feeling uh, of history having, having happened to all of us at the same time, and then this feeling of, like, being, having somehow ostracized myself from it at the same time, and already having doubts about the direction that our reaction to it was taking, but still being really upset about it, and then at the same time, it was, like, something I watched on television, you know, and I didn't feel like it was okay to complain about how I felt, because... A horrible thing had happened to actual human beings. It was very, very weird. And uh, and people that I knew, uh, people who were close to me seemed really, and I mean everybody, so many Americans were really angry and were ready to go out and get some, you know, payback. But there was no one really to get payback from. I never felt that. I, I mean, I, I wanted people, yeah, I wanted the people who were responsible to obviously to to be brought to justice. Even saying that phrase makes me feel silly. It's like no matter what you say, like no matter what words you throw at the thing, they're always the wrong words. Well, or they're just know? they've just been repeated so many times that they've almost been robbed of their meaning, or they just seem yeah. goofy, you know. Yeah. But obviously, I wanted justice. Sure, but I think I think my yeah my initial instinct was just that it was a small group and it was, should be like a police. Situation. Sure. I didn't think it was like a nation. I mean, it seems obvious. Well, they're non-state actors, but then, like, our army are almost non-state actors, too. You know, like, we do a lot of stuff with drones, and we send, like, a police force over there that's not even really an army to prosecute, like, a non-state organization and, like, a liminal zone between two other states. Yeah, it's like, so gray now. Like, yeah, no one knows what the hell's going on or, like, what to call it, you know, but it's being done, and I'm stuck in traffic listening to reports of it on the radio. It's very weird. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I'm like, I'll see something on the internet that I think is interesting and I'll try to shove it in my book, you know? Uh, and I get ideas for like better or worse. I get ideas that way a lot. Uh, so I don't know the, the, the immediate post nine eleven years, changed my work a lot. I, w I sort of went through this phase where I wasn't writing, where I knew I had to do something different than just, like, write pseudo-autobiographically, and then, and then, uh, right around that time, uh, my work changed and became more about, like, uh, more sort of about the news, you know, uh, and our position to it, and, like, our ability to make decisions, 
uh, in a time of crisis when we didn't have, when we sort of forthrightly knew that we did not have the right information. Yeah, no, I, I want to. Like, I, I felt, I feel a lot of, of similar. I had like a lot of similar emotions, mm-hmm. and I remember, and this is you know, this is sort of cheap almost, but I remember saying like. Somebody needs to write a book called The Information uh-huh. because it was so damn elusive and yeah. we, you, could, you knew you, we were being fed so much bullshit. Yeah. And yeah. it was and coming at you from every direction and it was just – it's disorienting. And as writers, it's like really painful to like read the newspaper and see nouns used in a way that is that was supposed to signify authority and truth and specificity but actually signified like the approximate and the vague and the phony and the thing you would read on Tuesday – was different than what you read on Monday. And yeah. the analysis you heard on Tuesday, you knew was going to be wrong on Wednesday. But there was, like, information all over the Internet and in the paper and on TV, and we were saying it to each other, and none of it was true, and we knew it wasn't true, but we had to talk anyway, you know? And we were using, like, you know what I mean about nouns. Like, there's a certain way you use them that, uh, like, if I want to talk about my shoes, like, I describe them in, like, a really specific way, and that's, like, how the news is written, you know? It's really specific, and the more specific it is, the truer it is. But then, at the same time, everything we read is, like, not true, well, or yeah. changes, or something. And, and Well, it's like, and it's like, there's all these, like, tricky ways that, you know, I remember, like, you know, especially, like, military speak, mm-hmm. where it's like, it's a target of opportunity. Yeah. What the fuck is that? Yeah. It's, it's like something we're going to blow up. Yeah. You know, where there are people inside, you know, it's just like, mm-hmm. if you start to like deconstruct these things and it can sound so benign mm-hmm. or promising or whatever it is, but you know, there's a lot of different ways that, um, people use sleight of hand with language, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in those kinds of times in particular. Yeah. So then I started to think that I started to think about myself and how much of what I thought about myself was true and how much I thought about the people around me was true and, and uh, how much of it might be mythic, like, and the role that, like, a kind of mythic truth plays in personal life. And so in my book, there's, like, a lot of, like, like sort of like political myth and like personal myth, like the characters have like public lives and private lives and their private lives are different. They're like different in their private lives than they are in their like sort of in, in their public lives. There's like this gap between the two. I'm really, I seem to write that without really knowing that I'm doing it, you know? Well, but I think that's true. I think that like, even with people who don't necessarily have some really distinct line between public and private, mm-hmm. I think everybody puts on one face when they're outside in the workplace or out with their friends or in public or at the grocery store Mm -hmm. and then behind closed doors when people are home Mm -hmm. with their roommate or with their spouse or with their, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, with their pet. With their family or with their, yeah, with their pet. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I feel like my cats, you know, like know the truth and thank God they don't speak English, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean that, you know, so you do that sort of intuitively with your characters and then there's mm-hmm. this great conceit in your book. I mean, I, was just, I haven't read the book, but I've read about it. I, mm-hmm. I have to confess all this, you know, with this show and the speed with which I'm doing these things. Understood. My lack of, uh, you know, staff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I did read that, you know, the the, char- the main characters in the book can control birds with their mind. Yeah, a couple. That's great. Yeah, thanks. That's like uh, one of those things where I'm like, God, I wish I would have thought of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they, 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 it's a father and son. 
and uh, the father has the power. He was the first one to have it, and, and he knows his son has it, and he uh, tries to keep his son from knowing that he has it until, uh, and it works for a really long time, until uh, the city they live in is one day invaded by a zillion birds. And then he can't keep the kid from discovering that he has the power. And at the time the invasion happens, which is in a way completely benign, the birds are not attacking anyone, they're not violent, they're just landing on like looking for food and like doing whatever the hell it is that birds do. And I should say that I don't know anything about birds. Are you scared I, of them? No, I'm not. I think that they're like lovely, you know, like any self-respecting like NPR listener. I think they're very pretty. Uh, you know, <laughs> you're not like a birder. No, I'm not a birder. Not uh, yet. Not yet. Uh, uh, I mean, I like like sort of the field guide to North American birds and the field guide to North American weeds, you know, uh, and I read these things and then uh, I might put them in something that I'm writing, but I always change facts about them, you know, because I sort of want all my facts to be not true. Uh, so they control these birds and, 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 and at the beginning of the book, they're like the biggest losers in the city, but they immediately become the most important people because they have this magic power. Uh, and they don't really understand where they got it or even really what to do with it, and they can't agree on what to do with it. And so it's sort of an opportunity to remake the place they live in in a moment of crisis, but they can't agree on how to do it uh, because of their relationship with each other and what they want and what they're afraid of. The father's really afraid, and the kid is really angry. So just to get clear on this superpower, mm -hmm. this fascinates me. Mm-hmm. They can like sit there and look at a bird and be like, "I want that bird to swoop down and peck out that woman's eyes." And yes, it's, they could do exactly that thing, but uh, but they generally don't do violent things with the birds because they think that it would be wrong. They feel like they don't want to hurt people with birds because it's wrong, and also because uh, they really like the birds and. When they start using the birds, they're trying to protect the birds. And the birds are in danger. Like, the birds are being killed all over the place because they're such a pain in the ass uh, in a civic way. So they're trying to protect the birds and trying to make them act civil. And the son does these gigantic cinematic uh, performances with the birds. He makes, like, gigantic movies with them. Like, he will take, like... Uh, you know, like, cause the birds have, like, different colors, you know, so he'll, like, bring, like, millions of them into the air and, like, make, like, sort of a cinematic production in the sky with them. It's about, like, USA, you know? Yeah, 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 exactly. It's something like that. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like uh, the Olympic uh, opening exactly. in China. The rings. Know? Right, something like that. But, no, this, like, this strikes me. I mean, that's immediately what comes to mind when I think of that, uh, you know, that whole superpower and, the, you know, all the things that you're describing is that it's got such a cinematic quality. Like, are you hoping for... A film adaptation? Was that in your mind? Is it something that, like, you're pushing? I, I can't... Uh, you know, it would be great if someone wanted to uh, make a movie of my book. Uh, I would be really surprised if someone did, I would say. I mean... Why? Because uh, it doesn't have a very happy ending. That's why I'll, what I'll say. It doesn't have a very happy ending. I think it's got, like, a plot that uh, has, like, a cinematic plot. It's really plotty. It's got a strong plot. I mean, I'm really interested in plot as like a machine of desire. I'm really interested in consequences, in the consequences of action. Uh, and that makes me interested in plot. And uh, I think I said this somewhere else, that my characters 
are victims, but they learn that too late for that knowledge to be of any use to them, and they end up becoming part of the machine that they're trying to destroy. Uh, and so I'm really, really interested in plot as like a machine of desire, like as a machine that like characters set in motion, and they have to live on with the consequences of, and how the consequences might be to some extent uh, unjust. Like a character does something in like the innocence of their passion, and that thing that they set in motion victimizes them and the people around them and separates them from the thing they thought they desired and uh, and separates them from who they used to be and from who they wanted to be. Jesus. And uh, I'm interested in... I'm really interested in plot. Uh, and I think it's really hard for people to understand what plot is or what plot is supposed to do. Well, what is it? Just what you just said? Or I mean, do you- uh, I, I th- Well, I don't think that there's like one definition of plot, right? But I read this definition somewhere, and I don't know who said it, but I'm going to say that it's that it works for me. That plot is like an ever-tightening death spiral of diminishing opportunity for a character. And I'm really, really interested in, like, that image of, like, the more they do, the more limited their options become. And the more they are sort of pitted against themselves or their desire or the world. You know, like, like, like in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo is pitted against uh, his own desire to show that he is masculine enough, let's say, because his friend gets killed, and then he has to kill the guy who killed his friend, and... Uh, but Juliet is sort of pinned against the world, like she's a political prisoner, she's not allowed to love who she wants, and she's not allowed to be who she wants, so, you know, like, a character's conflict can be against, like, any number of things. And I I think that this is, like, the definition that works for me, but I wouldn't say that it works for anyone else but me. You know, I don't think it's, like, the one definition, but it's kind of how I choose to look at it. You know, so, like, a character is... In my work, I want my characters to be, like, really devoted, you know, and, like, really, really passionate, you know, and, uh, and they're not, like, uh, Charles Baxter says that a lot of characters, uh, in fiction these days sort of regress backwards to a kind of original damage, you know, while also progressing forwards in their lives, trying to achieve their desire, which is some kind of happiness, so it's like a forward and backward at the same time. Uh, and I think that my characters don't really try to figure out what their initial damage is. I think that they sort of go forward into error, you know, rather than going backwards into a kind of self-knowledge, you know? Uh, so you're a masochist, or a sadist. No, I'm really a masochist. A masochist. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I was talking about this. Am I a sadist or a masochist just a couple of months ago? And I think if you have to ask the question, you're probably a masochist. Uh, but I, I just think that, that it's interesting to see characters under pressure. I really like... Now, part of this is, like, not a choice. You know, like, I don't think I could write something about, like, people hanging out on the couch, like, wanly flirting with each other and not really consummating. You know, not that my books have, like, a lot of sex in them, because my work doesn't have a lot, but it has, like, a lot of, like, fighting and tension, you know. Uh, has lots of bird sex. Yeah, yeah, lots Incredible of... Incredible amounts. Unbelievable bird sex, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, really hot. It's like bird porn. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess I just really like plot, and I really react to it, you know. Uh, and some of this is, like, I was really surprised that I was writing something like this, you know, I... I mean, I, the book started really accidentally. Well, I mean, well, let's stop for a minute. It, there, there's a super, there's an undeniable supernatural element 
Mm-hmm. Would you call it science fiction? I think there's an aspect of science fiction to it. Fellini has this expression that he uses. He says sci-fi of the past. So I think you could maybe say that. I think that there's, like, to some extent, like, let's say, a magic realist aspect to it. Sure. But, uh... So I think that there's definitely those things. I also feel like those those sort of distinctions are, like, maybe less useful than they used to be. And I feel like science fiction started off as this thing that no one wanted to write if they were going to be a reputable writer. And then George Saunders came along, and he's, like, the most reputable writer that everyone loves and like there's something about his work that seems so true to the moment that we're living in you know even though a lot of it is science fiction uh well vonnegut was that way absolutely yes like i loved kurt vonnegut when i was growing up and i I sort of see like the science fiction non-science fiction distinction to be like just completely useless you know and uh, well well i mean and the the, the thing too is that like when you're dealing with really heavy themes Mm-hmm. Like, you you know, you're talking about how your book was an outgrowth of your personal response to 9-11. Mm-hmm. Vonnegut was writing out of Dresden and yeah. the firebombing of Dresden at the end of World War II. Yeah. I don't know what Saunders went through. You mm-hmm. know, I'm sure yeah. he had some heavy stuff happen. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like maybe the only way to make these things palatable to a wide audience is obviously to, or not obviously, but is possibly to, um, you know, to use this to, to use the Fellini uh, term, the sci-fi of the past, mm-hmm. to warp it or to put it inside of a context that's really fantastical. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, humor doesn't hurt. I mean, mm-hmm. Vonnegut proved that. You could yeah. take the most dreadful situation in the world, and if you can find a way to satirize it or, or yeah. inject a bunch of black humor into it, it helps it go down. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I feel like I see, you know, in, in really heavy times, and I guess these times would qualify... Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like there's a, a tendency towards that in a lot of fiction, like literary fiction. Increasingly, I feel like people are maybe that's maybe that helps it sell. Maybe there's just, a kind of dislocation that we feel that we can't. I think I certainly feel it. I don't know who we, but like let's say I feel it, and maybe you do. That there's like a kind of dislocation, and just writing about cleaning out the garage is, like, not satisfying to me, even though I should say that, like, cleaning out the garage is, like, a profoundly challenging thing to do, and I, like, can barely make myself do it. Uh, but... And maybe I should write a book about cleaning out the garage, but, like, (laughs) I'm really interested in, like, this feeling of dislocation that I have always had, and so I, like, start writing from that feeling. That's the thing that makes me start writing. Uh, and it ends up dry... And I tried to write more conventionally for a really, really long time. When I was in graduate school, I wrote a conventional book, which was not published. Where'd you go to grad school? The School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Okay. Um, which is a great school, you know, and I really loved it there. I got a great education. I had a lot of great, great teachers. And uh, and I tried to write conventionally, and I think I almost succeeded. But uh, it wasn't satisfying to me. It I felt like I was, like, putting on an act. And... Uh, there's just like a kind of dislocation I feel, and it's very hard for me to come to terms with it. You know, and I'm like, really- talk about this dislocation more. You say you always have felt it. Are you talking about ever since you were a little boy? Yeah, definitely. I always felt it. It's, it's, I, I always felt like, like, like there was some way in which my identity as like a Jewish kid in a suburb that was you know, like, pretty Jewish. Outside of Chicago? And, yeah, outside of Chicago in a suburb called Northbrook. Uh, 
Like, there was something about... About, like... There was, like, a kind of unreality to everything that happened. There was a kind of unreality to my... Like, I when I was in first grade, uh, in the first week of school, my teacher didn't like that I was talking, and the whole class was... I was talking out of turn to the people at my little desk cluster. So she moved me away from the desk cluster to this window, and I faced out the window, and all of the other people in the classroom were facing in a different direction than me. And I spent the entire school year facing out that window. And I was always supposed to look out the window, even when she was writing something on the blackboard, she would turn to me and she would say, look out that window and don't talk. And everybody else was facing in another direction, and I spent the entire school year facing out that window. Were you, were you a trouble, were you like a troublemaking? Kid? I don't know how much trouble I could have made. It was the first week of school. Yeah. You know, like I didn't stab anyone with a scissors. I was just talking. Who was his know. teacher? Uh, her name was Mrs. Bovinette. Uh, and, uh, you know, she was an old lady and she was close to retirement and... Uh, I'm sure she's dead. Uh, I mean, this is a really long time ago. This is in, like, the 70s. Um, and I spent the entire year facing out the window, and, like, at one point, uh, after recess, I walked home. And, uh, uh, and I was hanging out in front of my house, and my, no one was home, and so I just hung out in front of my house until my mother got home, and my mother got home and was, like, Horrified that I had walked home and wanted to know like why it was why I thought it was okay to walk home and I I couldn't really explain to her because I didn't have the words that like I wasn't really a part of what was going on and that what was going on was like somehow unjust and I was not included in it uh, and when that you know like I was made to apologize and and that was it and and then I went back to my desk facing out the window and made to apologize for leaving school for leaving school yeah yeah uh and when that experience was over uh when that year was over I feel like I was sort of formed as a writer and as an individual and like pretty much I I don't want to say that that's like an origin myth I just made it into an origin myth but I feel like there's like a dislocation that I feel from everything that's going on and I feel like that's the nearest that I can come to explaining like what that dislocation is, that, like, everything that's going on is over on that side of the room, and I'm on a different side of the room with, like, a very, very different perspective on what's going on. And, uh... So is that how you feel right now? Like, are you on the uh, other side of the room uh, 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 Am this? I, like, dissociated? You know, like <laughs> yeah. I say, like, people dissociate because they learn to protect themselves in times of... Cra- I, something like that, I think, is, like, generally, like... I've had to work really hard to inhabit, like, a moment with another person is really hard for me. How do you do it? What do you do? Meditate or what do you... Uh, no, I don't meditate. Um, for a long time, I tried to figure out like what a person wanted to hear, and I tried to come up with that. And now... Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the time I like retreat into like some kind of jokey type thing, you know? Like, yeah. Tell some kind of joke or something, or... Uh, but that's, like, the place that I write from, you know, and, and I really like appropriating narratives, you know, I really like taking a narrative that's sitting around that, like, someone, I seem to do this automatically, like, the thing I'm writing now is a book about uh, Perseus and Medusa before they get famous, like, the early years. Before they get famous, I love that yeah. they get famous. Yeah, they before, get- before Medusa got an agent, you know. Right, right. Well, in Ovid's Metamorphoses, Ovid talks very briefly about how Medusa was a follower of Athena. And she was, like, a very devoted uh, follower of Athena. And she's on the beach praying to Athena at Athena's 
special temple on the beach, which I think is like particularly obscene. And uh, Poseidon rapes her on the beach, and Athena watches, and she averts her eyes. These gods back in the day. Yeah, they're unbelievable. And the thing is, followers of Athena are always raped and transformed. And Athena knows it because she sees it and then she averts her eyes and then it's Athena who punishes Medusa by turning her hair into snakes and making her into a monster and she punishes her. She punishes Medusa for reminding Athena of her culpability in like what in Ovid is like a kind of like rape industrial complex. I think, and and so this is like a, but this a is like rape a rape industrial complex. Yeah, that's what it is. In, yeah, in, I mean my expression, but that's what it is. Uh, and these like rapes are like producing the civilization that everyone is living in, because in the Metamorphoses, there's not like a really great uh, heroic plot. There's just a bunch of shit happening in the countryside where like uh, people are going crazy and destroying each other or themselves, and then the gods are destroying them, and like there's no rhyme or reason to anything. Uh, and, you know, before this kind of serial disaster happens to the followers of Athena, it happens to the followers of Diana in the chapters before that. Uh, so this is, like, constantly happening, and I, uh, I'm really interested in that. I'm really interested in that here's, like, this story that, like, every or here's this character, Medusa, who's really old, who everybody sort of knows about. You know, they sort of know she's got snakes for hair, and she turns you to stone, and she's really ugly, and she gets her head cut off by Perseus, who has this really, like, glittering career as a hero that's all based on his secret weapon, which is this Medusa head, which he gets, you know, uh, by doing something uh, that everybody thinks is heroic. You know, he cuts the head off, but he's not really interested in who Medusa is or, like, what she's thinking. Uh, so I'm really interested in, like, appropriating that story and exploring who Medusa is and what her side of the story is. You know, I'm really, really interested. Well, in yeah, I mean, no, it's like it's like you have to... I mean, I know I have such a superficial understanding of that myth. Mm -hmm. Just like you said, there's, like, the bullet points, and there's yeah. a lot of those. And, yeah. You know, a story like that that... It, I mean, it's like a... A mark of honor, almost, when uh, a narrative is able to survive that long and become a set of bullet points. Totally, it's an amazing. It's a, yeah, it's like the Christ story, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cruz born to a virgin, right? You know, becomes like prodigious spiritual teacher, right? Gets crucified, deity. right? Yeah, yeah. The book about him is like a huge hit. Uh, you know, perpetual bestseller. You have, you, have you read a lot of? I mean, the Avian Gospels. Have you read a lot of the Bible? Yeah, I've read it cover to cover. Have uh, you? Yeah, I have. I mean, some you're like parts the are, first person I think I've ever met who's done that. Uh, uh, some parts are more memorable than other parts. I, I can't. Get, I mean, I've tried. I mean, I've, I've read some of it, but I mean, it's really hard to mm -hmm. to read. I think some parts of it are like unbearably boring. Some parts are really great. Like know? what? What do you recommend? Uh, the Book of Judges. Um, especially the Jephthah passage is my favorite passage. The what passage? Jephthah is a character who uh, tells God that if God lets him win this battle against, I guess it's the Canaanites, that he will kill the first person he sees afterwards. So he sacrifices someone ahead of time, but he doesn't know who that person is going to be. So he kills, uh, he wins the battle, and then he comes back to town, and he doesn't see anyone because everyone's hiding, because everyone knows that he's made this promise. But the only person in town who doesn't know he's made this promise is his own daughter. So his own daughter is the first person that he sees. So he has to sacrifice her. Ugh. So he sacrifices her. And I'm really interested in these like kids who get sacrificed to their parents. Like Iphigenia is another character like this. Not a biblical character, but probably approximate with that time. 
you know, uh, this like pre, this like super ancient time that we don't understand, uh, that we only understand like mythically or religiously, you know, and Iphigenia, she gets sacrificed by her father, Agamemnon, before the Trojan War so he can get good wind. You know, uh, I'm just so interested in, like, kids that get sacrificed, or, like, I look at Hamlet that way. You know, like, like he sacrifices himself to satisfy the ghost of his father. Uh, I'm so... And, like, uh, Laertes does that, too. He sacrifices himself, and, in fact, there's this passage in Hamlet that no one knows uh, where where Laertes is talking with Claudius and Claudius says, are you going to be a good son to the ghost of your dead father? And no pressure. Or anything. Claudius said, yeah, no pressure at all. And Laertes <laughs> says, I will open myself up like the life rendering penguin and repast the friends of my father. And what he means by that is that, uh, you know, penguins, if there's not enough food for a mother penguin to feed... No, pelican, excuse me, not penguins, pelicans. If there's not enough food for a mother pelican to feed her children pelicans, what she'll do is she'll chew open her own flesh. She'll chew it open and she'll feed her children with her own blood. And it was a really popular image at the time that Shakespeare was writing. But what Laertes Wait, says... Wait, mean, what do you mean? Painters would paint pelicans? Eating? People would make woodblock prints of pelicans feeding their children pelicans with their own blood. Like in uh, the Folger Shakespeare Library version I have of Hamlet, there's a woodblock, a woodblock print image on the page by the footnote that explains what the hell is going on. So that was like the... I mean, in the time of Shakespeare, that was essentially the equivalent of, like, the panda sneezing YouTube video. Yeah, yeah, this is basically exactly what it was. It was in, like, the lower pop culture, right? Uh, and uh, Laertes reverses that. He says that instead of the parent providing for the child, the child will provide for the parent. Uh, and it's a totally different idea of how to look at parenting and children and, like, who sacrifices for who, because now we assume that, like, the parent sacrifices for the child and, like, we're so obsessed with how happy or unhappy we are that we're, like, overwhelmed. I don't have kids, but uh, I keep reading everywhere that, that everyone is overwhelmed with how hard it is to raise a child. Uh, and I, I was also thinking about this because uh, there's this idea in the Avian Gospels a lot, and uh, when I was finishing my revision of the book, The Sopranos was having its last season, and it really looked like Tony Soprano was going to kill his own son. It looked like he was going to kill AJ. I don't know if you watched the show, but... No, I, it, saw, I saw, like, the last one. You know, that's me. There were, there were so many passages in the show where it looked like Tony was going to kill AJ, his son, because his son was such a jackass. And he has this sort of surrogate son, Christopher, who he kills... He, like, kills him in cold blood just because he can. And after he kills him, he goes to Las Vegas and uh, has sex with Christopher's favorite hooker and has, like, a vision quest where he takes peyote and achieves his vision as an American hallucinating in the desert. Wait, after the, the has, James Gandolfini character yeah, did peyote? Yeah, he does uh, peyote. I in, need to, in a I Vegas, need to Netflix you know, that. Yeah, it's fantastic. You know, the guy who wrote the episode is uh, Anthony uh, Weiner, who does Mad Men. It's, like, his famous most famous panels episode. Not the former congressman who tweets his no, penis. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, a friend of mine and I were talking about the difference between uh, that guy and uh, Congressman Weiner and Dominic Strauss-Kahn, and how Dominic Strauss-Kahn is like really old school, 
you know, and he just, like, goes into a hotel room and rapes to help. But, like, <laughs> Anthony Weiner's, like, sort of just sending pictures of himself on the internet, you know? Uh, and they're both, like, aggressive, you know? And, like, uh, but they're, like, old school versus new school. And, like, Dominic Strauss-Kahn, like, doesn't use the internet. You know, he, like, doesn't use email or, like, Twitter. He's analog. Right, right. He's super... He's part of the rape industrial complex. Right, I think he is. So, let me ask you this. I mean, like, you seem really steeped in the classics, and you have this, like, I mean, you read the Bible cover to cover. Are you a religious person? Uh, Does any of that inform your work? I mean, you seem, like, interested interested in it. I'm afraid, um, and so I don't know if that makes me religious, but I'm certainly afraid. Of? Of being squashed and... Uh, I feel like, like the imminent possibility of being squished by the universe at every moment, you know, like, and if I get sick, like if I get a sore throat, I really like complain like I've been cursed, you know, uh, but I don't feel like the, uh, I don't like I, when I read like sort of liturgy, like liturgical Jewish material, like just doesn't speak to me at all. Like, were you were you raised? I was raised like a reformed Jew, where like I had like virtually no Jewish education at all. No bar mitzvah. I was bar mitzvah. Okay, but like, it didn't really have a religious component to it at all. Uh, it was more like a rite of passage. It was like a way to get money for college. You know? Like, <laughs> right. uh, my parents will be upset when they hear that. I mean, <laughs> I think that my parents now like regret that they didn't make me more Jewish than I am. You know, but I think in other ways I'm like extreme because I think that they think that I like don't take being Jewish seriously enough. You know that well, I don't, okay, I don't so, feel like a victim. But you know? this is interesting to me because uh, I feel like in my reading in radio that I listen to, just culturally, mm-hmm. there is a lot of. Um, analysis by Jewish people of mm-hmm. Jewish culture. There's a lot of conversation about it. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I'm an, uh, I mean, a Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm of Italian heritage. I always wanted to be Catholic. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm not practicing. I'm right. Lapsed a long time ago when right. I was a kid, but, um, I don't feel like, and I guess when I talk to people who were raised Catholic and particularly people who, you know, moved away from it, like I did that we have stuff to talk about, but, do you feel like, uh, I mean, is, am I correct in saying that there's just a, a lot more, there's a lot of conversation about that among Jewish people that I hear in our culture, and it's, I don't know. I mean, do, do you see what I'm saying? Yes, absolutely, yes. We can't shut up about being Jews and, like, what it means to be Jews and how weird, how peculiar it is to be Jews in this country. Yeah. And, like, uh, yeah, I absolutely feel that. And Definitely. what do you think of it? I mean, do you feel like, gosh, just get over it already? Or do you feel you like know, it's necessary? Or? You know, I feel like I don't have a good enough Jewish education and I wasn't raised in a Jewish enough environment for me to speak with any authority about the Jewish experience as a whole. I can speak about my Jewish experience. I feel like like being Jewish means so many different things to so many different people that there are like Republican Jews who grew up in Texas 
and uh, you know, and, <laughs> that's, and yeah, that's and, an interesting mix. Yeah, and 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 there are Jews too, you know. Like, and I I don't really know how to generalize about the experience at all. Yeah. I can really own like because it's just so hard to generalize about. But I I definitely feel like I like being Jewish informs like everything that I do, and it informs my work. But I also think that I will probably never write a Jewish novel, like a novel that is coded as a Jewish novel. I deliberately didn't code this book as being Jewish, even though the original title was The Israelites, uh, I was talked out of keeping that as the title because it would Jew the book too much. Uh, and I think that was... <laughs> <would Jew>. Yeah. <laughs> but, I like the verb use. Right, right, yeah. to Jew. Uh, there's like a couple different... There's like you can cheat someone out of money that's Jewing, but you can also like do something that reveals... That like makes something Jewish. Right. So, you know, I'll probably never write a Jewish book because I don't know... Like Adam Levin... Is has a really great deep Jewish education, and he knows the Talmud inside and out. He knows it so well, and I think he's qualified to write a Jewish book. Sometimes I feel like people write, and I really, really love the instructions for many reasons, including for how Jewish it is. It's like a Jewish education. Sometimes I feel like, like you can have like a profession just writing Jewish books because there's so many Jews who read books, you know, and they just like to read about other Jews. And I actually love to read about other Jews, you know, but uh, it's also like a professional kind of identity. Uh, and I'm just probably never, of course, I'll probably turn around and write a Jewish book after this. But, <laughs> but, but I, I what, what if Medusa was Jewish, you know? Well, uh, in my book, her last name is Bergman. Uh, <laughs> is it really? Yeah, it's Bergman. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. See? <laughs> uh, so, I, but I, I don't. I just don't know what, I mean, I feel like a vague sense that I'm supposed to feel like a victim. And sometimes I do feel like a victim. But then when I was growing up, I was sort of raised to feel like I was a victim when that was so palpably untrue that I was so privileged growing up. You know, I knew that I was like, at the same time I was being reminded that I was a victim, I was being reminded that I was lucky and I should be grateful for being lucky. And You're lucky. a lucky victim. Yeah, I'm an extremely lucky victim. <laughs> it's a good name for a book. Yeah. Lucky victim. Well, there you go, folks. Uh, well, what, let me ask you this. What's the name of uh, the Medusa book? Uh, right now it's The Gore and the Splatter. The Gore and the Splatter. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I hope so. I mean, I don't know who the fuck wants to publish The Gore and the Splatter, <laughs> but, you know, I thought like... Uh, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. Uh, you know, everything is illuminated. The gore and the splatter. There you, know, you I go. I think they are all like the same title. When is it going to be done? Do you have any idea? Are you close? Uh, uh, I would say that it could be done in December of 2012. That's what I think it'll be done. I think that I'll That's be specific. I think I'll be done writing it by August of 2012, but it'll take me until December to, like, unfuck all of the inconsistencies that you get when you write a first draft. To you know, like yeah, the unfucking process. You know what I mean? There's, like, so many things you don't follow up on, and, like, you forgot that, like, the house that you thought was east is, in half the book, it's west, you know, and that's, like, a big deal, because the characters are, like, walking in the wrong direction for, like, half... Like, they're always walking in the wrong direction, then you have to decide, like, well, which direction are they going to walk? Which direction will it hurt me the least in revision to make them walk? Right. You know what I mean? Of course. So there'll be, like, a million things like that, you know, and that will probably take, like, four or five or six months to... You know, that's, like, such a big part of writing, and I'm so disorganized. Yeah. I try really hard to be organized, and it doesn't. The matter. unfucking process. Yeah, it's just excruciating. You know, it's like 
turning your skeleton around without taking it out of your skin. You know, it just <laughs> sucks, you know. Well, on that note, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Good luck with it all. Thank you. And, uh, you know, when the gore and the splatter finds its way out into the world, we'll have you back on. I sincerely appreciate you having me on. It's really great. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's the program. That's the show. That's Adam Novi for the hour. You can track him down on the web at adamnovi.net. Novi is spelled N-O-V-Y. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. He also has a Twitter handle. It's at other Adam Novi. Uh, the book, once again, is called The Avian Gospels. It's available now from Short Flight, Long Drive. Might be a good uh, good book to pick up for the holidays. You can be on an airplane. You can be traveling. People will think that you're reading the Bible. They'll think that you're reading a holy text, and in fact, you're reading a dark, edgy, dystopian novel. You can be sitting uh, at the Thanksgiving dinner table, waiting for food to be served. People think that you're grateful. They think that you're in prayer. You're preparing for grace, when in fact, you're actually... Uh, stealing glances at the turkey while reading a novel about people who can control birds with their minds. So, the holidays, before I go, I want to tell you about a really great holiday gift offer. That's right, folks. In addition to being a vociferous uh, critic of the holidays and a uh, passionate contrarian when it comes to the direction of my moods, I'm also a stunning hypocrite. I've got a great holiday gift offer for you. It's called the TNB Book Club Holiday Six-Pack. It is the gift of literature. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It truly is an extraordinary deal. It's something to get for yourself. It's something to get for the reader in your life or maybe the non-reader. Here's how it works. The TMB Book Club Holiday Six Pack. Starting now, the next 50 people to sign up for the TMB Book Club get a six pack of books delivered to their door in December. Those books are, number one, The Moment from Harper Perennial. It's nonfiction. Uh, It's derived from a series that originated in Smith Magazine. It's writers telling stories of how a single moment changed their life in a profound way. Uh, Number two, The Marbled Swarm by Dennis Cooper, also from Harper Perennial. This is a new novel by a master of transgressive fiction. This is perfect for that dark Christmas mood. Number three, Swell by Corwin Erickson. This is from a great independent press out of Seattle called Dark Coast Press. Uh, Here's what Swell is, okay? It's a cross between Christopher Moore's Fluke and Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Number four, A Curable Romantic by Joseph Skeebel. This is available from Algonquin. It's a novel. It's a sweeping, imaginative epic that chronicles the tumultuous life of Dr. Jacob Samuelson in early 20th century Vienna, okay? This is a sweeping epic. It involves uh, his relationship with Sigmund Freud, the Universal Language Movement, World War, uh, World War II, all that stuff. Number five, Restoration by Olaf Olafsson. This is from Echo. It's a novel set in Italy, in Tuscany. You're in wartime Rome. There is uh, romance, there's intrigue, there's death, there's sorrow, there's love, there's war. Finally, a book called 501 Minutes to Christ by Poe Ballantyne. This is from Hawthorne Books. Uh, a little Christ for you here at the holidays. It's an essay collection. Uh, there are startling moments of beauty and insight in, the, in these essays. Uh, these essays deal with themes of addiction, whether it's addiction to substances or people or the prospect of fame. Uh, there's the theme of dissatisfaction. There's the theme of nihilism, perfect for Christmas and the holidays. And, uh, oh yeah, these essays are funny. So how do you do it? How do you get the TNB Book Club Holiday Six-Pack? All you got to do is go to thenervousbreakdown.com. 
click on book club in the menu bar. It's $9.99 a month. It's a gift that keeps on giving the whole year through. After you get the six pack of books in December, you then get a book a month delivered to your door every 30 days. And it's $9.99. It's less than the cost of a movie ticket. It's less than the cost of a book. It's a great deal. And better yet, it helps me keep doing this show. It helps me keep the lights on. So if you like the show, you have the money, you want to give somebody a cool gift, the TNB Book Club Holiday Six Pack. Uh, oh yeah, also, all the book club titles, I interview the authors of those books on this program. So you can read, then you can listen. It's worth doing, and I would certainly uh, appreciate it. So last but, last but not least, some housekeeping stuff. Uh, this show has a website, otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter uh, feed. You can follow us at otherpeoplepod. Uh, you can follow me at Brad Listy. You can check the show out on Facebook. And if you want to email me about the show or about something else, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Check out The Nervous Breakdown too, thenervousbreakdown.com. You can follow TNB on Twitter at TNB Tweets. And it also has a very robust Facebook page. Uh, many thanks to Kill Rockstars for the good music that you hear on this show and to the band Stereo Total uh, for the theme song. So check out killrockstars.com. I think that's it. I think I'm all talked out. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Uh, you know, smile, pass it on. Be thankful, pass it on. Be happy, pass it on. Be tired, pass it on. Be annoyed, pass it on. You know what it is? It's the tryptophan. That's what it is. That's why you're tired. It's the tryptophan. It's a chemical. It's in the bird. <laughs>